0: 1 Timothy chapter 1. Tonight we'll be looking at uh, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, And yet I was shown mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we echo the doxology of This passage, that you might receive all of the glory and that Jesus Christ might be exalted as the eternal King forever and ever. And we pray that that glory and exaltation might reside with us this evening through your Holy Spirit as we open your word, as we seek to understand and to worship through your word. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased by our gathering because it would be filled by your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Father, for our brethren throughout this community and the world who gather even this evening, this day, to lift up worship and praise to our most holy God through our common Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Father, bless us through your word, feed us, nourish us, grant us wisdom and understanding and then strength and courage to live according to the integrity and the dignity of the name that we bear as Christians, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We've often had occasion in Sunday school or Thursday evening to, uh, to quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but also to, uh, to point out that his homiletics, his view of preaching from the Word of God, Uh, is different than that which we hold. Um, Spurgeon did not preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. He actually felt and and wrote in his lectures to my students, taught in his Spurgeon's College, uh, that this was to quench the Holy Spirit. Um, But rather, the the pastor, the preacher, should um, seek the direction of the Holy Spirit uh, each week uh, to determine the passage that he would bring before the congregation Having said that, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, seven times Spurgeon was led by the Holy Spirit to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Now, considering that Spurgeon, it, it is estimated, preached over 40,000 sermons uh, during his ministerial life, seven isn't a very large number. Uh, but if you look through the index of Spurgeon's sermons, you will rarely find any single verse that he touched upon as frequently Um, as 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. In one of those sermons, he wrote, Now this verse contains the gospel in brief, and yet I may say that it contains the gospel in full, as if the great truths of the gospel were pressed together by a hydraulic ram, and yet there is not a particle of it left out. I I would agree with him. I think... um, this trustworthy statement or literally this, this faithful word or, or, or word of faith that Paul presents here in verse 15 is, is uh, indeed the condensed gospel. And yet, uh, as condensed as it is into just a few words, it is still comprehensive. It still includes uh, everything that there is really to say. Now the passage itself contains a great deal more and some of the more autobiographical material including the faithful statement where Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Spurgeon took this last statement, I am foremost of all, to be part of the faithful statement as if it were a confession that every believer is to make, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we all individually confess of whom I am foremost at all. I don't think Spurgeon is correct. I think the rest of the passage and the beginning part of the passage shows us that Paul viewed himself as the foremost sinner, not because, as, as we would have in many of our churches, he led a life of, of dissipation, of, of drugs, and, and of uh, fornication, and all of that, you things that, that we like to, to put up in front of the congregations as testimonies of God's grace. How somebody spent years in prison or in a gang or, or, or all of that. No, no, he was a persecutor of the way of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of Jesus Christ, of God himself. And so, as such, Paul considered himself to be the, the chiefest, the foremost, the most egregious sinner. I I think that's a a lesson that uh, we we need to take to heart. That the sins that we count as grievous are are really nothing compared to blasphemy and compared to persecution of the person and of the people of Jesus Christ. So I think we can safely uh, disagree with Spurgeon and and then shorten uh, this faithful saying to, to just the words, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. I think this verse is also incredibly important considering the context that we've been talking about in 1 Timothy, back in verse 3, as Paul writes, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Timothy is to guard the congregation against heterodoxy. Not necessarily heretical doctrine, but doctrine that is off the mark. Doctrine that strays from the straight line. Verse 5, he exhorts Timothy, "...the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith." And there's the the motivating uh, force that operates within the preacher, or should operate within every preacher of the gospel. But verse 15 gives us the the summary of what it's all about. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's enough condensed here for the seven sermons that Spurgeon preached, and and really for thousands more. And Spurgeon returned to this passage throughout his preaching ministry. We find, uh, if I I wrote down the index correctly, the first sermon in, in volume 15 and the seventh in volume 59, Uh, He returned to this periodically, and I think that the theme of verse 15 should be a regular refrain. I've mentioned in the past, and and there have been people who have been a little bit astonished by this statement, but the, the entirety of Scripture does not constitute the gospel. The gospel is within Scripture, but there's much of Scripture that is not the gospel. And so we have to be able to discern, not that any of Scripture is, is, um, is less important. It is all God-breathed. It is all beneficial. But much of it sets the stage for the gospel. Much of it tells us the world in which the gospel is going to come. But the gospel itself is very ably and powerfully distilled here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that is what we're going to talk about This evening, it is a full theological statement of the gospel, and I think, and I've I've commented on this uh, not, not very long ago, that that it seems to be a measure of inspiration. How much can be said with how few words? I think there's an inverse proportion to the degree of inspiration and the number of words you need to say it. John Owen, for example, was certainly not inspired brilliant, but not inspired, and and I have to confess that, uh, you know, through the Plumline series and the notes and everything, that I can lay no claim to inspiration either. Martin Lloyd-Jones or Arthur W. Pink uh, would probably couldn't say as much as Paul says here, short of 50,000 words. It seems to be somewhat of an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, that Paul's Eight words, and you might count nine, but there's only eight in the Greek. So these eight words really does uh, comprehensively give us the gospel, the fullness of Christology and soteriology in one short phrase. And I think it is the foundation, as Paul is laying it here for Timothy, it is the foundation of the ministry of the Word in any biblical church that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You have the the Advent, the Incarnation, you have the eternal Christ, and you have the purpose to save, and those for whom he came, sinners. Now there's much that can be said, and much that we just recently went over in our plumb line class in Christology, talking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But tonight I want to focus, as, as I think Paul intended for Timothy, in, in a more pastoral and ministerial direction from this verse, and that is the, the purpose of Christ and to whom that purpose has been directed. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Oh, well, yeah, that's what it says, but there's a remarkable division of opinion within the evangelical church, as to what it was Christ came to do, and therefore, what it was that Jesus Christ actually did. The majority of our brethren, at least in the West, at least in our country, if they thought about it, they would say that Jesus Christ came to make salvation possible. To bring about forgiveness of sin to those who receive it. To secure heaven and eternal life for those who believe it. In other words, to to open the door to those who are willing to come in. To make a way for those who are willing to walk in it. In other words, as I just said, to make salvation possible. And this is not without biblical basis. And I was um, again intrigued by the, the working of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Word is, as David is preparing his message for Sunday morning and I prepared my message for Sunday evening, David spent time in Romans 10 and even commented that that passage is um, one of the most uh, popular among Arminians because it seems so much to focus on the, the choice that the sinner must make in order to effectuate salvation. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Arminian believes that this passage outlines the cause of salvation, confession, and faith. The Calvinist believes rather that it shows forth the evidence of salvation, it is not itself the cause but rather the evidence, and and David brought that out in this morning's message, that that the one who is saved will (laughs) confess with his or her mouth that Jesus is Lord, and will believe, because that is the, the nature and the effect of regeneration. But the question remains, even though both sides of the debate acknowledge faith to be the non-negotiable condition of salvation, the question remains, what is it that Jesus came to do? Did he come to make salvation possible for those who in and of themselves will come to believe? Or, as this faithful word says in verse 15, did he come to save? There's a big difference. In fact, it's a huge difference because It places, really, the responsibility and the credit and the glory of a sinner's salvation either upon God in Jesus Christ or upon the sinner himself. And I think we all recognize as we read the scriptures that that is a very important distinction. Who justly gets the credit? whose work is the effective bringing about of salvation for the sinner. Because if Jesus makes salvation possible, then it is possible that no one shall be saved. Because the final and effective step, according to the Arminian gospel, must be made by the sinner himself. Based on the anthropology of scripture, we don't have a whole lot of reason for optimism that any of us, any of us, will make that step, will effectuate the salvation that Christ has made possible for ourselves because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who seek after God. No, not one. What difference does it make that the eternal Logos became flesh, died on the cross, and rose from the grave, if the benefit of that work depends upon my dead heart. just no benefit at all then. But fortunately, the faithful word that Paul gives Timothy and gives us is not that Jesus came into the world to save or to make salvation possible, but rather that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This also fits with what we read about the advent of Jesus Christ. The the angelic prophecy regarding Jesus' birth was that, that his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here we had the Paul's faithful saying, but Jesus' own words. We read them in John chapter 10. I'm going to read a, a few of these. John chapter 10, verse 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life for the sh- down for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. And then down in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The purpose of Christ's advent was to save. The intention of Jesus' ministry was to save. And therefore, if we believe in the omnipotence of God... Then we must conclude that the effect of Jesus' work was and is to save. All glory to God in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. And whom did he come to save? Sinners. Now, both of these points I think are incredibly important to a true biblical gospel ministry. We proclaim Christ as the Savior of his people not as the one who makes it optional and available to whomever on their own and of their free will will accept of it, but rather he came to save. And then we begin to think about, well, who did he come to save? The only description given by Paul is sinners. As I said earlier, Paul's biographical component is not part of the faithful word, but each and every believer each and every believer cannot be the foremost of sinners. They, there are different degrees of sin. Even Sodom and Gomorrah will be held to a, to a lighter judgment than Bethsaida and Chorazin. Sinning against greater light is a greater sin. Nonetheless, there is little harm if each believer thought himself to be the chiefest of sinners. Spurgeon brings that out in several of his sermons that there is great benefit to realizing the the, uh, heinousness of our own rebellion against God. Though though we may not have persecuted the church as Saul of Tarsus did, yet we did rebel against God, rejecting his grace. And we did besmirch and, and defile the image of God that we bear as humans. These are all far worse sins than a life of drug abuse and debauchery. But Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now, there's a temptation here uh, that I think suffered by, succumbed to by too many Reformed commentators, and that is to define and defend definite atonement, limited atonement. You know, we read that and we think, oh my word, that's way too broad, Paul. No, you know, that's way too broad a net, you say. Just sinners. And, And I think we could, even from this passage, Define and defend definite atonement. But that's not the point. And I don't think that's the point that Paul's making here. I think the more pressing issue in the modern church and among professing Christianity in our day and age is this whole concept of sinners being the, the, the goal or the, the, the recipients of the advent of Jesus Christ and all that that contains. And I want to bring out in closing two aspects of modern evangelical preaching that actually do a disservice to the gospel and in some respects are even heretical. The first is the, the almost complete lack in our day and age of the preaching of sin. Sin is an essential part of the faithful word that Paul presents here to Timothy and to us. The reality of sin and of sinners is essential. It is a, a, a sine qua non. You cannot have the gospel if you do not have sinners. Jesus said that he did not come, the doctor did not come to save the, the well, and he did not come to call the righteous to repentance. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, says, There can be no mercy for the man who has committed no fault. And remarkably, he he uses an example that I, I guess was already acceptable in that day, in the latter part of the 19th century, but apparently there was a man in England who had been convicted and imprisoned for a crime he never committed. And when it came to light that he was not the perpetrator of the crime, the man was released from prison and Queen Victoria granted him a full pardon. Spurgeon says, she had no business offering him a pardon. He wasn't guilty of anything. And he says, if anything, her majesty should have requested pardon from him and given him great compensation. I'm thinking, whoa. I didn't think you said that about the queen. I imagine she was not amused. But the point is, is true. If there is no sin, if there is no crime, if there is no fault, there's no need for mercy. And so, so many pulpits in our land preach a gospel that is sinless. And therefore it is meaningless. What is it that that Christ Jesus came into the world to save us from? And so any preaching that does not begin with, proceed with, and end with the fact that every single human being born naturally of Adam is an inveterate sinner, a rebel against God, and without hope in this world is not a gospel sermon at all. No matter what it may offer as far as peace of mind, peace of heart, prosperity or health, what it may offer with regard to the promises of God in Jesus Christ, it is empty if it does not lay forth sin and the reality of sinners. I think we all agree on that. I don't think I should belabor that. But there is another aspect of of this passage that affects modern evangelical preaching that, that is really very, very ingrained in the modern American church, and that is this concept of evangelizing target groups. Now this is a concept that was, that was popularized by that book, The Purpose Driven Church, that came out back in the mid to late 90s, I think, or early 2000s, I don't know. But I do remember that at that time, by God's grace and providence, our church was uh, attempting to establish a ministry in the inner city of Greenville for the families, in particular the the, the children, and through the children, hopefully their, their parents, that lived in the area of Mills Mill, Seth Street. And as part of that, trying to develop that ministry, recognizing that as a small church, we did not have the resources to take this on ourselves, we went around to other churches presenting the ministry and seeking cooperation and fellowship. And I can, I'll never forget the response of, of one pastor of a very, very large and popular church, a church to which a number of our former members have gone. His response to me was, that's not our target group. I had nothing left to say after that. That's not our target group. Now, I I think it's significant that, that the author of the Purpose Driven Church and those who have followed his pattern almost invariably pick their target group as young, upwardly mobile professionals who will hopefully tithe. But I'm sure that doesn't factor into their decisions whatsoever, that they're going to have a nicely dressed, neat, and just about entirely white congregation. That's not our target group. How can a minister of God's word say that? Say those words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's no adjective placed before the noun sinner. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to save wealthy sinners. To save young couples and young families sinners. White sinners, black sinners, yellow sinners. No distinguishing whatsoever whatsoever. If this is the gospel in one verse, and I believe it very well is, it is full of true theology and powerful to cut across racial, ethnic, and economic lines. If we look at our church, and I, I commented one Sunday evening not long ago that, that small, non-denominational churches tend to be the island of misfit toys. We tend to have people that are, that are not cut out of the same cloth, I noticed an advertisement um, of of a church school here in town that is very popular, very expensive. It's the go-to school for all of those target group people. And apparently that that school is embracing a diversity. I saw about two brunettes among all the blondes. And I was just astounded by the diversity that they have adopted. We should look around us. And ask whether or not we are in any way. Now, you know, it is up to God to bring those whom he will into his church. And I'm not an advocate, and I don't think we should, because if if we try to reach some type of quota, then what are we doing other than establishing a target group? And if we say our target group is inner city, African-American, or Latino, then that's a target group, which is no better than the target group of of wealthy white people. It's it's really the, the intention and the attitude of our hearts. When we look at someone outside of Christ, there's only one thing we should see. A sinner in need of the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation. And when we look around at our congregation and we see people from different economic strata, from different ethnic backgrounds, different racial, and and I do pray that that someday we will be able to to see that. All we should see is sinners saved by grace. That is the, the bedrock of the true biblical gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful word. May we be faithful to it. Let us pray. Father, we ask that that you would search our hearts, as the psalmist writes and prays, and in the context of this passage, this faithful word, that you would see if there is any wicked way in us, that in any way we might discriminate the gospel, that we might hold it up for some and not for others, rather than acknowledging that it is for sinners, such as we are, such as we were, condemned, without God and without hope in the world. But by your grace, you have brought us near. You have grafted us into your covenant people through no merit of our own, not even, not even the, the benefit of, a, of an ancestry, but rather as wild branches, You have grafted us in and given us life and that eternal and everlasting. We pray, Father, that by your spirit of grace, we might have a heart of gratitude that overflows in love to the lost and that we would be guilty of no prejudice, but rather hold fast to this faithful word that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We give you all the glory and the praise for this wonderful salvation and ask that you would work it out in our lives and in our congregation, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.